Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast. Today we're continuing our COVID-19 theme podcast, and today I'm talking about Jack Fitzsimons, who is from Oblivious.ai. So Jack, tell us a bit about your background, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ron, and thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, so my name is Jack, as, as Ronan has mentioned, yeah. um, and I'm working with a group called uh, Oblivious AI. Um, and we're basically a, a Dublin-based startup. That's myself and former colleagues from academia and industry who are working together to help essentially create the software to allow us to apply um, software and technologies, especially in machine learning and analytics, on data. Mm-hmm. without ever revealing the underlying data or the, the IP associated with the, the models and software itself. So it right intersects between machine learning and cryptography and is, um, is a really interesting area. Recently, we've had quite um, a whirlwind kind of month or so um, where we've ended up doing a lot of work in the domain of contact tracing. Um, so... I'm sure everyone has heard a lot about contact tracing, especially in regard to the, the pandemic at the moment, COVID-19. Um, and essentially what that is, is um, trying to identify people who may have come in contact with, with positive cases of, um, of, of COVID-19 um, test positive individuals and to be able to alert them or notify them that they might be at danger or at risk such that they can take necessary precautions or perhaps even do um, tests to um, help stop the spread of COVID more generally. So tell us a bit more about what your software actually does. Yeah, absolutely. So how the software works is imagine that the government has, you know, a couple of thousand people now who they know have COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want to identify who in the, the wider public might potentially have gotten it so that they can take those early interventions. Well, the kind of ideal functionality that we think about is what if we could leverage the data that's already kept about you by private companies, mm-hmm. such as telecom companies, your, your banking, um, or your mobile banking, social networks, etc., um, of where you've been and when, such that we can identify if you've come in contact with these people who we know for sure have COVID-19. But we don't want government to to break all of the laws and regulations that are out there and overstep. And rather, we would like to be able to do this without revealing any of your locations to the government or to maintain the privacy of the people who have caught COVID-19 and prevent their personal information being revealed to the wider public. And that's actually really important um, just because if you know where somebody lives and you know what bank they use and what shops they go to and where they potentially work from their location history, you can very easily do a range of attacks on them. You know, you can try to get, you know, estimate where their previous purchases may have been, try to get, you know, into their online banking, et cetera, et cetera. So this is very precious data, even if we don't, um, we don't realize at a time. And our job is to try to help keep that safe while also keeping the general public safe. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of years ago when you saw a Hollywood movie and they're planning to kidnap somebody. They would actually be following this person and find out their routine. Now they can do this by finding out where they've been online and contributions can be used to do that, which is kind of weird in a way. 
No, absolutely. I think you'd be surprised with the amount of information um, that is held by private organisations about where and when you've been to various places. So your you know, our smartphones are fantastic for many regards. We can message people easily, connect to the internet, um, do online banking and so on. But actually, every time you make a phone call or send a text message, um, your device is communicating with cell towers. And as such, triangulation can be done. Yeah. And I think this has been used many, you know, for many, many years in order to identify where people are, if they're at risk when they yeah. call 911 or 999. Um, but also, every time you use online banking, you know, the bank wants to make sure that it is, in fact, you. And so if your device you know, says that you're in a country that's on the other side of the world and is known to have many people who try to um, you know, flush out people's bank accounts, then maybe they prevent you from logging in, which mm. is a totally reasonable thing. But nevertheless, these data stores are being filled with your location history. Um, and so, yeah, the question is, is can we leverage this in a very ethical way in order to help protect people? Yeah. And when did you have the eureka moments that you decided we could actually adapt what we're doing to help COVID-19 tracking? That's a good question. So that was actually about four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago. So uh, one of the guys who've been working on uh, Oblivious with me, it's a gentleman called Udit Gard. He's an investment banker out in the UAE. I used to live in Abu Dhabi, so um, he literally worked in the office next door to me. Um He's a really great guy, and he's got a number of connections back in India. And one of his good friends, Rudy Matal, um, set up this organization called COVID India. Yeah. And basically what they've done is they've brought together um, tech companies, volunteers, um, government bodies, larger corporations, who are all trying to work together in various different ways in order to help the government manage COVID-19 in India. And, uh, you know, India itself has a population of 1.3 billion people. Yeah. That's almost one in five people in the world. A huge population and a very different um, socio-economic demographic than, for example, in Ireland. So while, you know, you can kind of, <laughs> to, to a large extent, at least in Ireland, ask people to stay at home and stay indoors, that's not always going to be the case in, in India. Um, and even, you know, there's a number of approaches that have been proposed here and in Singapore and other places, which we can talk about later, uh, to do Bluetooth-based contact tracing. Well, in India, um, only about 22% of the population have smartphones. Um, up to 90% of the population actually have feature phones. So um, they would be the, you know, the mobile phones that are kind of not smartphones, but you can still make um, phone calls and text messages and so on. Yeah. And so... The need for them to use a variety and a mix of different data sources um, became very important. And the sheer risk of the virus spreading widespread across the country, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a kind of a horrible thought to think about. So just with the, this population size and also the vulnerability of some of the people in the community, um, we kind of said, let's think about how we can help. And we've been doing so ever since. Yeah. It's like, because I can remember I interviewed somebody a few years ago from MasterCard, and they were talking about fintech solutions, and talking about in Africa, most people don't have bank accounts, and they, they use their phones to actually buy and sell things, and they're using uh, feature phones, and not smartphones. So in other words, when you, got, when you got stuff that they're doing there, that was more advanced than we're doing in Ireland. Same thing with India, I guess, that shows you what we can do with just a normal phone. 
Oh, absolutely. So if you think about it, I'm sure many people will have the AIB or Bank of Ireland or Ulster Bank or, or whichever um, mobile phone uh, banking application on their device, um, and they might use it regularly. In places like India, they've actually kind of pivoted the industry to fit the needs of the population. Yeah. So there's a lot more um, kind of text message-based banking um, systems that you can use. There's also a lot of uh, micro-lending and credit-based agencies who use your GSM data through an opt-in um, system to identify, essentially, are you, are you going home every night to roughly the same place? Are you going to work roughly the same place every day? And they can use that to build up a credit history such that they can give you some um, some capital. Yeah. And, you know, th- these loans aren't necessarily predatory loans. Someone who works in a market might need to take out a small loan at the beginning of the day to pay for the fruit and vegetable, which they then sell in the market and which they then pay back at the end of the day. So yeah. um, there's this whole industries built up around these which are, are kind of non-existent here in Ireland. Yeah, I can imagine. Because I know in Ireland it's not, it's not about that, but over there, like I said, for Africa, they've adapted what they're using to fit their needs. And at the time, you're thinking, going, that's genius. There's somebody with a 10-year-old and Nokia, and they're able to do things that I can't even do with, with my iPhone. Absolutely. Yeah. So now I should mention that we don't just try to do you know, work with the feature phones. We try to use a broad spectrum. Yeah. So when it comes to contact tracing, essentially what you want to do is identify um, if people have come in very close contact with one another. Yeah. So you know within a, a meter or two um, over an extended period of time. Now I'm not an epidemic epidemiologist or <laughs> not exactly sure how to even pronounce that. Um, so we've been just following guidelines or you know, various different partners kind of express. What, what they're looking for and we just help them implement it so to speak um, but that's very hard to do with just GSM technology so yeah. your normal mobile phone uh, calls and texts because the radius for that tend to be substantially larger so yeah. somewhere from kind of 20 to 100 metres which is actually quite a big circle around you yeah. um, Bluetooth is very tight your GPS on your phone is is broader so I think, you know, if you look at your Google Maps, sometimes you're not sure which side of the street you're standing on. Um, And then there's, you know, various levels above that. So, for example, if you connect to Wi-Fi, um, a Wi-Fi device, then if we know where the device is, your phone actually knows the the MAC address or the the, kind of technology name of the device you've connected to. And that can also be used. It's used a lot for indoor mapping, for example, and localization. So... um, so yeah, we've been really looking at a holistic approach of how you can try to use these technologies and these different ways of identifying um, where people are and what they're doing, uh, but in a completely privacy-preserving way through cryptography, fortunately, yeah. to give that information to a government um, such that they can say, okay, well, actually, this top one, two maybe 10% of people are really at risk and we're going to focus our efforts at communicating to them. Um, these 90% of people haven't really been in contact with anyone who's potentially sick. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's basically the gist of what we're doing. We're doing it in India, but there's no reason we, we can't be doing it across Europe and the States as well. We've, um, we've been in contact with various different health service officials now um, in many countries. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see where this goes over the next few weeks. Now, you managed to get the help rates of AWS on Oracle and board. How did that come about? 
Yeah, well, so it's quite interesting. Everyone wants to help with COVID. I think the goodwill is um, at an all-time high. There's a guy called Thomas Walsh who works with the HPSUs um, at, at ARG, also the HPSUs are high potential startups. Yeah. Um, so I had previously met him. He's a really great guy. Um, and I'd met some people from AWS at an Enterprise Ireland event. Um, so when we, as we were kind of rolling out our first projects, um, and I should also say there's another partner in there called Strategic Blue, um, who've been fantastic too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of met each of these uh, you know, individuals from each of these organizations. And so what I basically did was picked up the phone and gave them a call. Um, Oracle's been fantastic, not only in um, helping getting us onto partner programs to give discounted compute so that we can try to offer the services, because we're doing it at cost, we're not trying to make any money off this, um, but so that the costs are reasonable for places that may not be as affluent um, and where might need this technology. Yeah. Uh, AWS has given us a range of, of credits, and Strategic Blue have also um, been instrumental in, in getting us getting the costs down to make sure that it's very feasible for, for countries, especially those that may not have the resources of large Western countries. That's pretty good. Now, getting, getting back to earlier, you were talking about, uh, about the uh, ethical questions about, about what you're doing. How do you make sure what you're doing is complying with a GDPR? No, that's, that's a really good question. Well, I think we can even roll back. So, I mean, if you look at what countries are doing around the world, yeah. there's been many different approaches. In uh, South Korea, for instance, at the beginning, they were really focused on the public health issue, which is, of course, you know, the main issue that people are concerned about. But they were sharing a lot of information about um, who had, you know, were confirmed cases of COVID-19 and where they had been, etc. And they kind of got pulled up internationally um, on overstepping on the individual's privacy that was the patient. Yeah. So that was a quite a large um, case that was brought against them. And then you saw in Israel, they passed some emergency legislation which um, essentially allowed their cybersecurity um, divisions mm-hmm. to kind of track their citizens. And when people come in contact, um, they would send a text message to let you know that you're, you've potentially been in contact in the last week with a confirmed case of COVID-19. Um, however, that massively overstepped on people's privacy. They don't want the governments to know where they've been at every point in time. So, um, so they got a lot of media backlash, but also backlash from their citizens. Now, most countries don't have the, you know, the tech, technical power, the processing power, the, even you know, anything like Israel for, for that kind of scheme to be feasible. Um, so you say to yourself, well, how can, how can you do this? One approach would be to say, okay, well, what if we were to take the patient's information and we were just to give it to telecom companies and to app companies and we were to ask them not to, to give it to anyone else? Yeah. Well, it's, that's very hard to actually manage, right? And there's probably a lot of people in the organization who now have a list of names of, of, and places people have been who've been sick, and you can't really control that. Um, equally, you could say, well, what if we just, what if they gave us all their customer information? That is clearly breaking GDPR and many other customer rights uh, acts and regulations internationally. Um, so we have to say to ourselves, okay, there must be a way to identify whether or not people have come in contact without disclosing when, where, or with whom. So how we consider this is, imagine two 
databases. They're just massive Excel spreadsheets to those who aren't familiar with databases or, or just big lists, you can think of them. Uh, and imagine we drop all information about um, who's who or, or anything else, but we just know a timestamp, so when we're talking about, and a location, like a GPS location. So essentially how our, our approach works is we, yeah, quote-unquote, encrypt. It is encryption, but we can think of this in an easier way. Um, each person's locations, and they do a simple back and forth to identify whether or not they're in the same location or not. So uh, I'm not sure if anyone's ever played Settlers of Catan or, or any of these games that have like little hexagon board tiles. Yeah. Um, but we basically divvy up the entire Earth's surface into small little hexagons of a couple meters by a couple meters. Um, and that's parameterized by you know, whichever partners, whatever radius they think is most important. Um, and no matter where you are in the world, we can say you're on tile number you know, 1,200,000, so on, so on, so on. Um, and then we can compare, are these two people on the same tile? And it's kind of like taking the tile that you're on, spinning the world around, so you're on a random tile, taking away where you know, the tile that the other person has been on, the location of that, and spinning the world back again. And if they're on the same tile, then you kind of get a zero as an input. So, you know, okay, they must have been in the same location. And if they're on different tiles, well, then you actually don't know how far apart they've been or anything. You just know that they are not on the same tile. <laughs> so it's called proximity testing in cryptography. Um, and it's very well, it's well established. Um, I looped in some researchers I knew very well from Oxford, Zurich, ETH, and the University of Maryland to write a paper with my, myself. And it's um, information theoretically secured. It's kind of the highest level of cryptographic security. Yeah. Um, so we know that works. Um, and then we say to ourselves, okay, well, if we can do that, surely there's some small amount of information being leaked because the government starts off not knowing anything. And then they end up with some statistics saying, you know, how many people have come in contact with how many people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, is that going to be okay? And we, we spoke to some, some great people. So there was uh, Alfredo uh, Parga, who's the former chief data officer of Fidelity International, um, and Professor Ona Dell, who's in Trinity and Law. Um, and we, we kind of yeah, picked their brains to make sure that we'd be on the right side of history here. Yeah. Um, and especially Professor Onadel, he pointed out a range of potential issues that might come up with regards to GDPR. So we've been very careful to make sure that we're, we're abiding by each of them. So the main points are like, it has to be completely anonymous. Yeah. So you can't reveal you know, who's who or, or anything to do with that. Yeah. It has to be um, done through you know, well-established cryptographic means, which mm -hmm. we're absolutely abiding by. And finally, um, you can only process um, information or extract further information about your customer base, etc., um, outside of the general T's and C's if it is in the interest of them. And because this is, we're trying to identify whether or not someone has the risk of being, being sick so that we can try to help them immediately, even if it's before they become symptomatic, um, we are also abiding by that. So um, obviously that's a bit of a simplification. But, you know, how we've approached trying to be GDPR compliant, yeah. et cetera, is by just talking to the experts, figuring out what the criteria are, 
and making sure that we're staying on the kind of right side of history, so to speak. Yeah, and also talking about that, we know that uh, people are bigging up big time in the media about the apps used in Singapore and South Korea. What issues do you see with these with these apps that have been used there? Well, that's a, I think that's a really good question. So. Um, Especially in Singapore, they've gotten a lot of media around their app traced together, which, by the way, has been a tremendous effort. So before, you know, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to, to criticize any individual's approach, and everyone is working very hard yeah. um, with, with similar intentions. So this is not a, a, you know, a direct criticism or anything. But there are a number of challenges with the Bluetooth-based um, apps, and I think they've been well-cited around the place. So one of the challenges, for example, in Singapore is that approximately 1 million users have already downloaded the app uh, to use it regularly. Um, it, that sounds like a big number, and the population of Singapore, I think, is between 5 and 5.5 five and million. Yeah. So if you think of that, that's kind of about 20% of people. Now, if I need to have the app, and you also need to have the app to identify that we've potentially come in contact with each other and I'm now sick, therefore you should be contacted. Well, then that's a one in five chance times a one in five chance. Yeah. So you're only really going to catch about one in 25 cases, which is a very low um, a low probability. Um, I wouldn't say it's negligible. It's definitely worth doing. Um, and people should definitely download these apps and use them and we should try to get that usership up. But the real fundamental issue behind the app-based contact tracing is that you need a very high proportion of your population to actually go ahead and actively install the apps. Um, and unfortunately, that is very challenging to do. Even when you have strong government backing, you have a lot of um, media and marketing behind it. So, you know, the problem would definitely go away if everyone just, <laughs> everyone encouraged everyone they knew to, to start downloading apps, etc. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened as of yet. So our approach really has been to say, okay, well, let's assume that we can't get 95% of people to download these apps. Um, And I can imagine that many people have parents or grandparents or or younger siblings or whatnot, or even kids who are unlikely to, to be downloading these apps. So you can see why it's a challenge. But instead we say, okay, well, there's already these huge databases out there that have lots of location information on people. You know, even if you're in the supermarket and you tap with your credit card, then your bank knows that you are in that supermarket at that, you know, teller, so to speak, at that time. So what if we can actually leverage the information, the technology and the infrastructure that's already out there in order to aid this process? Mm so I yeah. So I think Singapore was one of the f- first people to really put the head down and make a bullish attempt towards the contact tracing. Yeah. But I think now we need to look at different approaches. It's also worth mentioning um, that there's been a, a huge effort. So Dr. Michael Vale over in um, UCL in London and many other academics. I think there's seven universities from five countries initially. I think that's grown now and um, have put together a a letter to governments to say, if you're going to do contact tracing, please make sure that it's um, it's abiding by privacy and confidentiality and that there won't be potential scope creep in the future. And I think that kind of work has been very important. They've also proposed some Bluetooth-based apps, but unfortunately they face the same challenges as Trace together. And we're, we're basically trying to say, okay, let's 
let's try to preserve as much privacy as possible, but also let's try to be as effective as possible. So let's look at diverse data sources um, and then have that secure um, kind of uh, interface between the parties to, to preserve privacy and security. Yeah, and I guess that's the problem facing the government when they're trying to introduce their app in the next few weeks. Absolutely. I mean, that will be a challenge that they face. Hopefully, I know there's a lot of goodwill power in, in Ireland, um, so hopefully people can can encourage everyone they know to download these apps. I've spoken to some of the people um, involved in the HSE, and I know a lot of effort has gone in to, to building the app in Ireland and whatnot, so um, hats off to, to all those who are involved in that. And, and hopefully here in Ireland and other countries, etc., um, we, you know, if provided that the app doesn't solve the problem, which would be the ideal situation. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully technologies like ours can be put in place um, to, to kind of help against the, the next wave. Yeah, it, it's actually very timely as well, how things have happened. Um, and I guess we've been fortunate we started the week we did as opposed to the week later or so on. So in India, for example, um, they, they've now been on lockdown for four weeks. They're meant to be reduced, you know, completely out of lockdown by the 3rd of May, um, they can't really extend that. They're finding it difficult. Two days ago, they started easing out certain areas uh, of various cities. So um, we actually have a partner in India. We have a number of partners, but they're called Intigen Technologies, yeah. and they do a lot of the GSM-based, um, basically creating heat maps, doing contact tracing, and doing geofencing based on GSM data. And they monitor about 25,000 users who either have tested positive or who are presumed to be test positive for, for COVID-19. Because obviously there's a lack of tests in some parts of the world. Um, and so they're basically trying to identify even areas of a city or areas of a region that may need to stay under quarantine while other areas begin to open up. Yeah. So you can imagine if... Um, if there was no one with COVID-19 in, say, I don't know, Balana or somewhere, that perhaps the, the people from that area can start going about business and, and regrowing their local economies, etc. But we just don't want anyone going in and out who may potentially have COVID-19. Um, and, and that is one approach to try to kind of ease the country back towards, towards normality, especially if COVID hangs around for a little bit longer than, than we're hoping. Because so. I've seen on TV recently uh, a CNN reporter that was in uh, Wuhan and wanted to go for to go back in there and he, he had to move to Shanghai and Beijing when this has been done while well, I think was happening with the uh, lockdown and now he's back to now he has an app that he used to go everywhere and on the app is a QR barcode and the QR barcode uh, has two has two three colors it's either uh, blue or orange or red. If it's blue, it means you don't have COVID. If it's blue or orange, you might have COVID, and you have to go. So you have to be restricted to where you can go and go back and stuff isolate, which is interesting. But I can't see that happening in Ireland because we're not used to that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the state government of Assam in India does a similar thing when new people are coming into the state. They kind of self log their their locations also. Yeah. Um, I think it would be difficult to achieve in Ireland. I also know, you know, we we have to be a little bit wary as well um, the problem is is that we actually don't have very much data on what we know it's contagious because we know there's lots of you know it's all over the world now and unfortunately there's been many 
deaths and many people have tested positive for it, etc. But exactly how that's being spread and what that looks like, there's still a lot of unknowns. So perhaps the most famous um, journal in the kind of scientific community, there's two, they usually refer to, one is science and one is nature. Yeah. They're about what they say in the tin, so to speak. Um, But there was a paper in Science back on the 31st of March, I think it came out. Um, And they were looking at, it's used a lot in the context when people are talking about contact tracing. Um, And they talk about how it can be spread. A huge proportion of it being spread is from either pre-symptomatic people or -hmm. symptomatic people. But there are also people who are asymptomatic, so who have had it. We will never know that they've actually had it. There is also some um, environmental factors. So, um, you know, perhaps you weren't really in direct contact, but somebody touched a door handle and then you touched it sometime afterwards. Yeah. Um, And they tried to calibrate what proportion of the spread was from each of these different areas. But even they, if you look at that study in more detail, they only really had, I think, 40 examples that they're trying to parameterize their model from. Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of examples out there are using very small, you know, data sets to try to make extrapolations. Yeah. And that's because we need results immediately. But it also means that we need to take some of the results with a pinch of salt, and we have to slightly prepare not only for what we think will happen, but what also may happen. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So um, I don't think we ever saw you know, what's happening today going to happen back in January. Um, and I'm pretty sure a lot of us don't really know what August is going to look like or or next November or December or whether or not a lot of these technologies will have to sit around in the background for the next you know year or, or, or longer um, before we're confident that we're not going to be getting um, a similar wave of a virus yeah. in, in the short term. Because I've seen in America, um, they were saying yesterday that they think there's going to be a second wave, which is going to be worse than what they're currently facing. Yeah, I've heard I've heard similar things like that. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of a lot of challenges. Um, we definitely, I mean, if you look at the curves, it certainly appears that a lot of the curves have flattened. Yeah. But even that, you know, when we talk in in machine learning language and applied statistics and computational statistics and stuff, we often refer to causal models, which are models which kind of imply some sort of um, causal relationship between some set of um, latent or unseen things and the signal that's being created. So we've seen a lot of them dip off. Um, I strongly imagine that a lot of that has come down to people quarantining, staying inside, not shaking hands, wearing face masks if possible, and so on. But it's hard to know which factor exactly has been most effective or which, you know, um, there are so many unknown unknowns out there that I think we can just try to do our best and create, you know, and use and create the technologies we have that are kind of already built because we don't have a year to start building things um, to to use kind of um, data-driven decision-making where possible. Yeah, and so, yeah, and until yeah. we've got this sorted out, a best advice would be to stay safe and stay indoors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know myself and my fiance and my family and whatnot are, are at this point we're just trying to follow what the, the government recommend and be respectful to others. Yeah. I'm sure everyone um, would, would would like to do that as well. Yeah, in the moment, just try and make sure that if you have any mental health issues, 
we get people that are, that can help you and try not to feel like you, you're stuck in a like a monkey cage in a zoo. You're able to go and if you can, if you can walk for around where you live, or you're able to go for five minutes outside for fresh air, do that. If you got a balcony, walk out in your balcony, sit there for a while and get fresh air coming in, so you don't feel like like you're locked away. Yeah, I, I know the term unprecedented it comes up a lot, at yeah. the moment, so I don't want to keep saying it, but like it, this is kind of an unusual set of circumstances. I know myself and pretty much everyone on our team has been working night and day trying to get stuff over the line and deploy things and get the papers out and you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And I know other people um, you know, may have less to do day to day and they're finding it very frustrating and between bored and irritated and whatnot. There could be any combination in between. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are probably overeating on <laughs> food in the cupboard as soon as you're always at home and all the rest. So, um, so there's a lot of reasons that you could be feeling not quite right at the moment. I think they're all probably okay, but there's a lot of initiatives out there to, to help if that is the case. Yeah, now before we finish the podcast, is there anything else you want to add to the podcast? I think you think it's had enough. Um, well, to be honest, we, you know, we've been we've been deploying this in in, in India. Uh, Intergen Technologies have been fantastic people to partner with, and we're not doing this for um, you know kind of a, a profit motivation or anything like that. So, if there's any um, you know if any of the listeners have uh, an idea of where these kind of technologies could be useful, or um, if they'd like to help in any way, it doesn't even have to be in an Irish context. Um, yeah, definitely reach out. There's, um, on oblivious.ai, it's our website, there's a, a little box that you can send a message in that. <laughs> we built that, so as soon as you hit send, we get a ping on all of our phones immediately. <laughs> so um, if you do have any ideas or, or anything, please do reach out. You know, we're trying to do our best to, to help others, and if, if anyone else can be part of that, that's fantastic. All right, thanks so much for that, Jack, and uh, have a great day. And uh Hopefully, in this distant future, we, we can do this conversation face to face and not and not uh, not via Skype. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to that. Day.